Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. Today, how did 400 people survive a burning plane crash in Japan? And then new U Haul data shows us which states people are moving to and which they are ditching. It's Wednesday, January 3rd. Let's ride. Toby, pond hockey might be going extinct. As of New Year's Day, only 0.35% of the Great Lakes were under ice compared to the 9% on average at this point in the winter. It's the smallest amount of ice cover in the last 50 years, and it's not an anomaly. Ice levels have been dropping over the past few decades. It's still early in the winter. Sorry to remind everyone. So ice levels could recover, but meteorologists say this is an extreme number that could have major effects on not only pond hockey, but things like ice fishing competitions. <laughs> God forbid the, we lose our ice fishing Toby, competition. That's a big deal. I know it is a yeah, big You deal. just offended the entire northern stretch Listen, of the United States I, I, and Canada. I'm so sorry. I am a Florida boy. I've never done my ice fishing. Good for cold plunges, though. You can go in and uh, no ice covering it. Before we jump into the show, we have a quick word from our sponsor, Veeam. Any business owner listening to the pod knows the sinking feeling of having your data compromised. Maybe it's human error. Maybe it's a malicious attack. Either way, it stinks. But Veeam can come in clutch no matter the cause. It both protects your data and helps with recovery, a dynamic duo that provides an all-in-one solution for any sized business. One might call Veeam the Toby and Neil of cybersecurity and data protection. You flatter us way too much, Toby. Head to Veeam.com today to discover more. That's V-E-E-A-M.com today. All right, Neil, you know that feeling where someone is getting a lot bigger in your rearview mirror on the highway. Like, what the heck is this person riding my tail for? Just pass me. Well, Tesla knows that feeling because Chinese EV maker BYD just surpassed Tesla to become the best-selling EV maker in the world in the fourth quarter of 2023. BYD is likely a name foreign to some of you listening at home because it stayed more or less contained to China. But luckily for BYD, China is a really big place with a lot of car buyers. Sales of new energy vehicles, which include both hybrids as well as EVs, grew 37% year over year in 2023. And more than one in three cars sold in China were technically EVs. And BYD itself is doing even better than that. Sales of their new energy vehicles jumped 62%, which led them to track down big bad Tesla and make the overtake. 90% of BYD sales are still in China too. It's a force to be reckoned with. It really is. This is a changing of the guard. This is China's arrival on the automotive stage. Uh, it already surpassed the U.S., South Korea, and Germany as an exporter of cars. And in 2023, wait till we get the data out, but it could pass Japan as the largest automotive exporter in the world. Yeah, and BYD is riding the wave really well. I said 90% of sales are domestically in China for the company, but overseas sales tripled in the second half of 2023 and more than tripled from a year earlier as well. I think that the word play of new energy is interesting, though, because if you looked at the breakdown of what kinds of vehicles 
vehicles BYD is selling. It's close to like 60-40-ish between uh, EVs and hybrids. They sold 190,000 EVs last month and 149,000 hybrids. So maybe that data of like surpassing Tesla, remember Tesla just sells EV vehicles. Mm -hmm. So they have a different definition of what new energy is, but still forced to be reckoned with. So why is BYD so successful? I think a part of it, a huge part of it is the Chinese government. They've, uh, the Chinese government has drowned this industry in subsidies. It's given over $30 billion just through consumer incentives alone. We see the U.S. trying to do that now. It's working okay. I mean, we have a $7,500 tax credit for consumers, but but the Chinese government has been so supportive of the of the industry. And then there's such intense competition. There's other, there's a hundred other automotive brands in China that BYD has to go up against. And the fact that, you know, this intense competition, we've seen it in a bunch of other industries as well in China, is you really cut your teeth and only the best of the best rise to the top. There will be 158 new car models introduced in China in 2024, 80% of which will be EVs, according to HSBC. So you talk about a crowded market, BYD has to stay on its game in order to stay on top. So you see, uh, you said that uh, that a lot of people listening to this may not know BYD, but you know, there were a few Americans who did know about BYD a long time ago, and those were two fellas named Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. In 2008, Berkshire Hathaway invested, made put a $230 million stake in BYD for 10%. Now that stake is worth eight billion dollars. Potentially one of the best investments of all time. But it, it, it's it is huge. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with BYD if they can keep their role and if they can expand to foreign markets where the U.S. and Europe you can, you can be sure they're going to put up tariffs and other other protections to protect domestic manufacturing. Okay, big news out of Cambridge, Mass. Yesterday, as Harvard University President Claudine Gay stepped down following multiple firestorms about her leadership, having assumed the role in July. Her six-month tenure as president is the shortest in the university's 388-year history. Gay, along with the presidents of MIT and Penn, came under fire for her testimony in last year's congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. While she apologized and received the support of the board, her seat got even hotter when conservative media outlets accused her of plagiarism in some of her scholarly works in the past. An independent review from Harvard found instances where she didn't give proper citations for language she used from others, but it did not amount to the level of research misconduct. However, more accusations of plagiarism continued to drip out, and Gay ultimately said, this is not sustainable. I'm out. Gay is the second Ivy League president to resign in less than a month after Liz McGill of Penn stepped down on December 10th. Gay's critics like billionaire alumnus Bill Ackman ran a victory lap and claimed they were successful in their campaign to stem the rot that had spread through American college campuses. Supporters of Gay said the push to ouster was politically and racially motivated as she was the first black president in Harvard's history and only the second woman. I mean, one of the elephants in the room here is that our highest institutions are kind of being run as mini corporations that themselves have to answer to these billionaire donors in a way. I mean, private donations to U.S. colleges and universities topped $59.5 billion last year. And the core kind of problem with running as a uh, being a university president today is one of your main jobs is to solicit money. So when these billionaire mega donors start kind of influencing what's going on in the universe, university, it's just kind of a... It's a, it's a bad situation for everyone involved because they shouldn't be the ones determining who is president, who is making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, they would contend they, they, are, they, they do want to have a role. I mean, you have Ken Griffin, the CEO of Citadel, the huge hedge fund, who has given a 
half a billion dollars to Harvard. You mentioned the stat about you know private donations ballooning, but it's not just you and me giving back to our schools. I mean, that's not going to move the move the needle. 80% of all donations last year came from the 1%. So it's the Bill Ackmans of the world. It's the Ken Griffins of the world. And so, yeah, I mean, Claudine Gaines' first, you know, she's a, she is a president of the university, but her main role really as is as fundraiser. Harvard has a the biggest endowment of any university by far. It has more than uh, it has a war chest of more than $50 billion. But that endowment hadn't been doing so well recently. I think it just gained 2% in the last year. And then you look at early ac action applications for Harvard has decreased 17% this year. So, you know, the, the Harvard board did seem like it supported gay, but there were too many controversies going around and she stepped down. Yeah, you can understand the emotions, the frustrations around something like this, but it's a bit of a dangerous precedent for mega donors to kind of intrude into university life like this and to use their influence to kind of oust these university presidents. So it's a new era we're, we're living in. I mean, it's an old new era because they've always in influenced it in some way, but seeing it just so starkly uh, happening at Harvard, at uh, Penn, is kind of eye-opening. So Ackman ran a, a victory lap and now he's going after the, uh, the MIT president next. There was a very scary aviation situation yesterday when a Japan Airlines jet landing at a Tokyo airport crashed into a smaller plane, killing five people on that smaller plane and sparking a fire that engulfed the bigger jet. But the word you kept hearing when reading more about this collision, miracle. That's because all of the crew and passengers, 391 of them, got out of the Japan Airlines plan plane safely before it was ravaged by the flames. People who were on the plane described a hellish situation where smoke was coming in from the rear of the aircraft. It was getting very hot, and they all scrambled for the only emergency exits that were available at the front. Aviation experts said the crew and their training had a lot to do with everyone making it out okay, calling it calling it a textbook evacuation. Authorities have launched an investigation into how this could have happened, considering that the Japan Airlines jet was cleared to land on the runway where the other plane was apparently located. So there are still a lot of details to be explained, but the main takeaway, a miraculous escape from a burn burning fuselage with only seconds to spare. It could have been a lot, lot worse. Yeah, the crew did incredibly well, and all the passengers on board also did incredibly well. But you kind of put this accident in context of the broader airline industry right now, and if we want to return to American soil a little bit, I mean, for the 12-month uh, period ending August of this year or, or of last year, um, for which data was available, there were about 300 accounts of near collisions involving commercial airlines. So it just goes to show you that even though we are not seeing these big fiery crashes like we just saw in Japan, a lot of these close calls are happening every day at U.S. airports. And even though there's been no major U.S. plane crashes for more than a decade, this is becoming more and more frequent as the FA as the uh, FAA is kind of overworking their uh, attendance. Right. The number one cause of these close calls or any sort of dangerous or scary situation at airports seems to be short staffing of air traffic controllers. As of last May, only three of the 313 air traffic facilities around the U.S. had enough controllers to meet targets set by the FAA and the union representing controllers. So these are these people are being very overworked and they're short staffed. The U.S. aviation industry says it's the safest in the world and 
it may be true because there has not been a fatal airline crash involving a, ma a major U.S. airline since 2009. So there's been a record streak of 14 years where nothing bad has happened. But there are a decent amount of close calls that anybody yeah. flying is probably doesn't want to be aware of. I mean, the sheer load of flights they have to deal with is insane. The FAA manages about 45,000 flights uh, across the U.S. per day. I mean, DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth, for example, manages one landing or takeoff every 20 seconds. And if you look at the data that there's around 1,000 fewer fully certified controllers now than a decade ago, how are you dealing with this, this massive increase? And so, we're seeing more close calls. I want to go back to the Japan one real quick because this is going to be huge for understanding how planes burn. And it's just going to be a, a treasure trove of data because this is a new plane, the Airbus A350. It just came into service in uh, 2015. And it's made different. That and the Boeing 787 are made differently than than the other than older planes, which are made of aluminum. This one is made of carbon fiber composites. And you can't just like set a $40 million plane on fire to see how it burns. So the fact that this happened, everyone was safe, and now aviation industry is gonna be able to do so much investigation on the how this plane burned and it held up like a boss. So they're really, they're really happy with with what happened here. I mean given the circumstances, and they're going to learn a lot more about this plane and others like it in the future. Okay, before we jump into our next story, we're going to take a quick break. The pandemic did a number on consumer choices. A Wall Street Journal article found that Coca-Cola has reduced its brands to 200 from 400. Utah-based furniture company Logan reduced its lines to 3,500 product choices, down from almost 11,000 items. And Yankee Candle maker Newell Brands has retired 50 different types of candles. Brands are choosing efficiency now over variety and are more than happy to lose certain customer segments if it means they don't have to spend too much on smaller niches. Macy's president, Tony Spring, told analysts in November that the customer today does not want an endless aisle. And that's reflected in the products we're seeing on shelf these days. New items made up about 2% of products in stores in 2023 in beauty, footwear, and toys, down from 5% of items in 2019. So it's not just your mind playing tricks on you. You really do have less choices when you go shopping these days. I, that's fine. People don't want so many choices. This is really a result of the pandemic. So before the pandemic, there was this concept called the endless aisle and the growth of e-commerce and people scrolling and shopping on websites meant that brands were like, hey, why don't I segment our products a million different ways? I'll make a handbag that has a le leather strap. It has a chain strap. I'll make five different types of this shade of red. And you know, it turns out that when the pandemic happened, supply chains got all out of whack and these, these companies had to really prioritize that more of their hero products, what they call. So I think there was a streamlining. You said Coca-Cola like cut all of its brands in half. So I, but I think ultimately what you hear these CEOs saying is, why did we do this in the first place? Like we were wasting so much money. People don't necessarily want so much choice. They want really good products. And I think the, the fact that we're seeing these sort of slimmed down product categories carry on into 2024 now shows that maybe this, this whole per personalization wave was a mistake. Yeah, I mean, just look no further than grocery stores. Large grocers used to think that they need to carry everything or else you might lose the, company, uh, lose the customer to the store down the road or something. But now large grocery stores have reduced fresh food offerings like fruit, your dairy products, your, your deli meats by around 15 to 20%. It's just fewer items to manage and a slimming of product options, which also reduces food waste for them. I do think a lot of executives are probably looking back at maybe the before times before the pandemic and just definitely go, 
going, what the heck were we thinking? I think there was a wave of like the hype around personalization. I mean, it, I think it works for some companies. The TJ Maxx's of the world, like the bargain hunting retailers where you go in and the clutter is the point and you go on this treasure hunt. I think it works for them. Starbucks is another uh, company where I think the per personalization has worked well because you look at TikTok and everyone's making their own drinks. But I think for the vast majority of companies, more choice doesn't equal more purchases. And this has been proven out in science. In 2000, there was a, a study where these scientists presented uh, customers with 24 types of jams, okay? And only 3% of consumers actually made a purchase when presented with 24 types of jams. When they were presented with six types of jams, 30% made a purchase. So people don't want diner menus anymore. I, gotta, I don't. I got to know what those jams are, though. What's the six they whittled it down to? I think that... Uh plays a role in this as well. <laughs> all right, now I want to introduce you all to Luke the Nuke Littler. He is 16 years old, loves eating kebabs and playing Xbox, and later today he's competing in the finals of the World Darts Championship. Luke is the best story in sports right now. At 16, the Englishman is the youngest person ever to make the reach to reach the darts final, and if he wins, he'll be the youngest to hoist the Sid Waddle Trophy by a full eight years. His sublime performance is also drowning out the best of British commentators have to offer. One said, Luke doesn't need to use the force. He is the force. All right, so you get the idea about Luke. He's a prodigy, very likable dude, but you probably want me to address the elephant in the room. We're talking about darts, the game you play when you need something to do with your hands at a bar. Well, in Europe, darts is serious business, and it's only getting more popular. Luke's quarterfinal match drew 1.4 million viewers, and overall viewership for the Darts World Championship has jumped by nearly 900% from 1999 to 2023. Luke has already made 200,000 pounds from his play, and he could rake in a lot more if he wins today. The total purse is 3.6 million pounds. The dude is electric after winning his second round match. He's celebrated by treating himself to a kebab and a can of tango. He has since been offered free kebabs for life by a London kebab house. He really is just leaving the dream as this 16-year-old prodigy. Listen to this quote from him. People are chanting, necking beers. It's crazy. It's hard to focus. They are chanting your name. Imagine being 16. You can't even drink, and you're being cheered on by the most raucous crowds Britain has to offer. Right. I want to talk about the raucous crowds because this is the Super Bowl of darts. It's held in this historic venue. There are thousands of people who come out and... It's kind of like Comic-Con. People are dressed as Power Rangers. People are dressed as minions. And there's just such a good vibe going around because no one really has a huge stake in who wins or not. It's not like a, a soccer match where the away supporters and the home supporters have to be separated. Everyone's in there having a good time. And I should say getting extremely drunk, as Luke mentioned. Yeah, so this seems like one of the best spectator events to go to in the world. Happens every year from Christmas to New Year's. And it's become a huge business in Britain and across Europe. CNN had a great line. Alcohol consumption is measured in pitchers, not pints, which just gives you a sense of what kind of environment that these players are playing in. Do we think it's a sport? What's your What's your take? Oh, certainly. I mean, I you it's a I don't know Can't what the die. definition of a sport is, but being very good at darts and and throwing with precision the way these guys do and concentration, I think it's absolutely a sport. I don't you know don't know the Oxford English Dictionary definition of a sport. And I and I do think if sports need that element of drama or theater to them, darts has that in spades. Totally. So if that is some part of your definition of sports, then one hundred percent. I really hope he wins. He's going up against another guy named Luke, who's the, the number one in the world. 
today, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a huge event. Absolutely. Every so often, we come across one of those macro data dro data drops that we just have to share with you all. And today's comes from U-Haul. Every year, the transportation company calculates which states are growing by measuring each state's net loss or gain of one-way equipment from customer transactions in a year. In other words, who is snagging U-Haul trucks on a one-way ticket out of Dodge, and where are they driving them? And this year, you can do your drum roll, please, at home. Texas came out on top as a state that netted the largest number of movers for the third year in a row. Behind Texas are Florida, followed by North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. As for the biggest net loser, it was California for the fourth year in a row. This feels about right, wouldn't you say? It does. I mean, I don't know if we should take U-Haul data as, I mean, we have the census, right? We have, <laughs> we, have, we have actual government data to tell us where people are moving, but it is kind of interesting to think as of U-Haul trucks moving in and out as a proxy for where people are moving. And people are just moving to the Southeast. It's crazy. Everyone wants to be in the SEC. Everyone wants to leave the Pac-12. It's what we're seeing in college football. I mean, the six fastest growing states in the South, Florida, Texas, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Tennessee now account for a greater share of U.S. GDP than what we typically consider the economic powerhouse, which is the Acela Corridor from D.C. to Boston. And so the Southeast is just absolutely rising. It's got fast-growing cities. It's got cheaper land. It's got plentiful jobs. This is just the economic powerhouse of the nation right now. I also want to shout out Idaho, though, because if we look at the rest of the top 10, Idaho, Washington, Arizona, Colorado, and Virginia round out the top 10 states for growth. Going from the, the southeast, the warm climates, to Idaho, I think. Mountain West. A, yeah, Mountain West. You're, you're a big mountain time uh, person. So. Mountain time is the best time. <laughs> we know you're a, a truther. The bottom five states for growth are, in addition to California, Michigan, New Jersey, Illinois, and Massachusetts, Neil. What, what's up with that? That. What's up with that? Is people don't want to live in the Northeast anymore. <laughs> the There's quarter. no more pond hockey. RIP. <laughs> Very true. I also wonder if there's something to be said about the type of person who rents a U-Haul and if that influences the data, because maybe someone who's moving to Texas would be more likely to pack up a U-Haul and do it themselves. So again, you said there's census data. So I think maybe we're seeing some reflections on like the type of people moving, not necessarily some macro trends on where people are I moving. was absolutely thinking that, but I didn't want to bring it up for fear of offending uh, anybody or, or, or creating any stereotypes. Yeah, it's a compliment. Uh, but yes, California, they're going more out than in that's for sure okay that is our show for this wednesday it's already wednesday already wednesday. love a short week as always you can send your thoughts on the show or say what up at our email address morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com let's roll the credits emily milliron is our editor and producer samantha velas and raymond Liu are associate producers Uchenua ogu is our technical director billy menino is on audio hair and makeup is in a kebab coma this morning Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. Tomorrow.